You're uh, Ziggy from Quantum Leap. I will have to believe you. I was going with Genki <laughs> from uh, from Miles Morales, which is the video game I'm playing right now. <laughs> uh, how about Gear from Static Shock? You've gotten to uh, 97? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Get in there. Cool, cool, Get in there. Live for the Mundangerous Public Park in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 285 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about getting past all of the boring stuff. But first, the party hears Tales of Woe in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, the time skip fools with timey-wimey stuff in the Character Creation Forge. All right, last reminder... Gen Con panel this Saturday, September 18th, just a couple days away at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we'll send out a Zoom link before the panel actually happens, but in order to get that, you have got to sign up at gencon.com slash events. Just search for Total Party Thrill. It is absolutely the only thing that we are doing for Gen Con Online. It is called Skin Deep, playing realistic, non-human RPG characters. So, you know, we'll talk about all that stuff about, you know, if you live 700 years, how does that change your perspective? If you have wings, how does that change your perspective? If you're four foot... One, and so is everyone you know. How does that change your perspective? <laughs> and we'll also have some time at the end for questions, uh, which will be, I think this is probably going to be the biggest Zoom call I've ever been a part of. Um, if if the uh, if the sign-up numbers are anywhere close to, um, <laughs> to how many people actually show up, uh, I'm actually kind of getting a little nervous, Ishan. Uh, that's good. It means uh, you might actually do some prep. Uh, well, that's, I mean, mm. why well, start yeah, now? That. Yeah, look, just conveying my nervousness to the world is my prep. Oh, that's nice. Right. Cause then when, when we screw it up, which we will, right. I've already bailed. We can say, look, we, yeah, we already knew this was going to happen. Yeah, I, exactly. I'm not emotionally invested in this in any way. Right. I expected failure and I got it. So I win. I had a big zoom call for, uh, the baby shower and I essentially did the same thing. It's fine. I don't. I don't care. It's just all our closest friends and family, whatever. But you know what? You know what? I think this audience, I'll feel even closer to. All right. So you can sign up by going to GenCon.com slash events, searching for Total Party Thrill. It should be the only thing that comes up, and you can sign up there for free. There's also a link in today's show notes. All right. uh, You have a rant for us, I think. I don't know. Is this a rant? I don't know if this is a rant or a clarification. It's not a rave. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So we got a question on Discord from Snark Knight, a longtime listener, a longtime Discorder, who who asked essentially, was the problem encountered with the sidekick rules uh, when, when we did our recap of the actual play that the Cobalt stat block makes a crappy sorcerer because of their terrible int, whiz, and cost stats? Um, so no is, I guess, the short answer, right? Like that that is annoying, but I think that's an edge case, um, but it's also an annoying edge case. Um, I think my, the bigger complaint that I have is just that the psychic rules are not as flexible or as streamlined as you would think, like given the sort of pitch for them is like here, just modify the base stat block and you're good to go. Right. It it doesn't really do that. (laughs) There's choices to be made. There's wrong choices to be made. There's a lot to learn. Like you're basically like 
they're basically a PC, but they have a different way of generating their ability scores, their race, and their background, and you're not allowed to multi-class them, but you still have decisions to make. I mean, hey, just modify your base stat block in 5th edition D&D is create an entirely new monster because Mm -hmm. everything affects everything else and there's so many derived stats. And then also you add spells, right? And that's... Sure. Well, I so, mean, you picked a spellcaster. Uh, sure. Two, two spellcasters. No. Well, one of them was kind of already a spellcaster, but... That's uh, true. The thing is, though, it's like two of the three options to do are spellcasters. No, one one third of the options... Well, there are three options, and then one of those has two sub-options, both of which are spellcasters. Right. So I picked... Well, I mean, even if you didn't pick a spellcaster, if you look at like the rogue archetype or um, whatever, expert and warrior... They have a lot of fiddly bits as well. You know, like, you got to remember your second win. You got to remember your your sneak attack and, like, your your half versions of PC abilities, which is almost like playing another version of the same game. Yeah. You know, like, remembering your 3.5 rules. That's really what it came down to, is playing them meant that you need to, like, genuinely own their mechanics. So you need to own their initiative, all of their actions, their hit points, their spell slots, uh, any ability on their sheet that they can do. Like, you need to know all of that stuff. And then play them and make decisions like you do for a PC, which is, boy, does not feel like a sidekick to me. It, it just felt clunky is really what it came down to. It felt like I was playing three PCs. Two of them were a little bit goofy and I couldn't just take class levels. You could take bad class levels. I mean, what was nice is during character, like during level up, right? Like you just told me what I needed to change. So it was faster to level them up. But frankly, leveling up characters is not where the time gets wasted. I mean, it did kind of take two of us to play them, right? Because you'd be like, all right, I want to do this thing. And I'd be like, well, you have this ability or this spell or whatever. Is that the thing? Is that how you want to do it? Right. One potential way that it might actually work better in practice is if you've got one sidekick, maybe two sidekicks appended to a party of four to six players. And then everyone is sort of sharing in remembering their mechanics. Yes, I think that makes more sense. Obviously, like we were coming from a perspective of solo play, though I would argue, and this is maybe me being pretty sensitive to word choice here, but like sidekick implies hero. That's a singular relationship. When you make them a PC, like it feels like you're talking about a hireling, somebody who joins and participates in the party fully uh, for pay versus like the sidekick is there to make the hero shine. They help the hero. They don't outshine the hero. And so I just, I feel like when you say sidekick and then you say you're playing a solo adventure, boy, the sidekick should really help that solo adventure, shouldn't it? And it, again, didn't feel that way, right? Like, not that I'm, not that I, I'm bothered by where the story ended up going because of this, but like, that was not what I expected from a sidekick to have Meepo and his head knocker be kind of the star of the show in a lot of ways. What I would be looking for, I think, when you call something a sidekick, right? as the player want to control how and when they impact the story and not be dependent on dice to determine that actually they were the hero all along, right? Like that, you know, because they got the good dice rolls in the good moments, like they're the ones who get the glory. Um, I would rather they enhance the glory of the PCs versus steal a little bit for themselves. I mean, you did end up in kind of like Tick and Arthur scenarios wondering who actually the protagonist is here Mm -hmm. whose story are we telling and of course the answer is meepo's right i know where this is going the the problem is tez didn't have any sidekicks (laughs) now we i think we should just we should uh like uh restat him as a sidekick restat tez Mm -hmm, yeah just everyone will be sidekicks 
Yeah, I mean, I couldn't play him any less accurately to his character <laughs> sheet, so, you know. The psychic rules as laid out in Tasha's really feel like a, sort of an add-on, an afterthought, you know, that weren't necessarily play-tested, but are presented as an option if you need to pad out a party or, you know, you don't, you know, you just don't have enough players. Um, we had enough players because we were playing a solo game, but there are sidekicks, essentially, psychic, psychic NPCs presented in the module, so there they were you know right but going forward maybe with tez maybe not but like you know what would in your mind be a better way to implement having additional npc characters so i think the immediate patch is just give sidekicks a minimum of 14 in their primary stat right that guarantees that they are competent and qualified to be whatever class that you choose for them um gives you the freedom to choose any class and then also avoids that like weird edge case we ran into with cobalts right so cool he's never going to outshine you because a 14 is not pc level for a primary stat but he will always be useful as a sidekick and that to me feels like meepo the spellcaster mechanically i think that's a, a simple fix it should take that much effort to work into the story I mean, especially if you are bringing sidekicks on as essentially like a quest reward, mm -hmm. you know, an awakened animal, it makes perfect sense that maybe they would have a 14 in their stat rather than like the, the requisite 10. It, it makes sense that like Meepo is chosen as a sidekick because he is special in some way and not that he becomes special because he's chosen as a sidekick. Yeah. And that, so that's what I like. I mean, that, that keeps the rules mostly intact. It, kind of fixes the edge case that was most annoying but it's going to basically leave them as half pcs mm -hmm. <laughs> right like which isn't my favorite fix but also recognizing that i am way too lazy to do all the work for my actual preferred fix <laughs> and, and it will remain forever theorycraft which is sort of just rejecting D, D entirely right like get rid of the idea that every character must exist on the grid have hit points have action economy the idea that there are background characters that are part of the party who aren't interactable in combat, which is not how D&D is intended, even in theater of the mind, like that is a weird concept. But basically what I would do is like create archetypes for the sidekicks, right, that are completely different from classes that activate and trigger like either as legendary actions or kind of like as like kind of. I don't know, situational buffs or uh, like with specific triggers, right? That then they activate and do something that otherwise is not possible to the party. What, what I'm thinking of uh, and the example that I had it, or that we had in the game was like Skelebro was more of a sidekick in the moment where we lit him on fire, sent him through the, um, through like the tall grass as a distraction. And then in our moment of need, he emerges from the brush on fire, alights the tree, and completely turns the fight on its head, right? He basically gave us the reset that we needed to have a chance to win in that moment. To me, that feels like awesome sidekick ability. You know, it was like he was there at the exact time to bring us back to this fight. But what you're saying is you don't need to know that he has vulnerability to bludgeoning damage, 13 hit points, and carries... 20 arrows a short bow and a short sword no what you need to know is we were in a terribly desperate situation two of us were down right we were low on all of our abilities and we had enemies at our throats 
and he emerged and turned the fight on its head. Tez was able to get back up and fight, right? Like, Erky was able to stabilize. Like, we, we just, the fight continued, right? In a way that it was basically lost. To me, like, that's a cooler idea, right? So some type of reset mechanic when you have multiple PCs down, like, that's when you strike. You're the guardian angel. The Morgan Freeman to Batman and like the Christopher Nolan movies of like you're the eye in the sky, right? You're like always doing research. You're you're distant, but you're providing real time information and analysis. So like you can spot a weakness or troubleshoot a problem or like, you know, help with history checks, even though you're not in the room. Right. Like those kind of things via like, you know, some magic item or whatever that lets you scry what's going on around you. Like, cool. Right. Like that's a thing that you can't otherwise get. But because you have this relationship and the sidekick, like that lets you be a little more powerful and a little unique. You're a Ziggy from Quantum Leap. Is that a dated reference? Uh. I will have to believe you. I was going with Genki <laughs> from uh, from Miles Morales, which is the video game I'm playing right now. <laughs> uh, how about Gear from Static Shock? Okay. Wow. Well, you've gotten to '97. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Getting there. Cool, cool, cool. Getting there. Um, I mean, you're you're right. Like this is not a scenario that D and D is built for. Literally, everything has a stat block because it maintains that simulationist DNA, right? Like familiars kind of do a similar thing, but they all have a stat block. They it, exist in a space and they can die. Exactly, and that's the problem. Is like a fireball kills your familiar, right? Like it's fine at level one. It's useless at level ten. You uh, <laughs> put it in that extra extra dimensional space, right? That's what you did. I never used never took abilities. Them out, right. <laughs> the, uh, I don't disagree with you that they can work better as a narrative tool. I just have such a hard time believing that D&D is ever going to move away from the sacred cow of building a party like Baldur's Gate or Icewind Dale, where... <laughs> You know, you've got one person in control, but they control six characters. Absolutely. Like, yeah, that's totally correct. Like, that is not D&D. I wouldn't expect Wizards of the Coast to ever put this out. I'm just saying, like, look, I've spent a lot of time. We've played a lot of, like, kind of narrative first games recently, like Rebel Crown, Back to Band of Blades, right? Like, I spent a lot of time, like, rebuilding Band of Blades for for Warhammer 40K. Like, I spent a lot of time, like, talking with, with Strauss, the designer, about, like, how these like things like the importance of words, right? Because like in that game, all of your mechanics have to fit on the character sheet. Look, I think it'll be great for D and D eleventh edition in sixty years. I mean, maybe sixth edition will be terrible, and you know it'll be four years before we hit seventh. We'll see. Yeah, Pathfinder third, perfect. <laughs> so, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our 5th edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And on a ship in Scion Sound, the party is hunting down a rogue sect of House Jurasco. With an arrow in his heart, the captain of their ship has just died, and the ship is listing. I commandeer that ship. It's mine now. Captain's dead, and I've called him. So Warden crawls over to the closest mast, and using a gust of wind, puts out the fire that is consuming the sails before the masts collapse completely, and the entire ship is useless. As opposed to what just right now, without a captain. 
partially useless. <laughs> Bramble, in the current, uh, currently in the form of a giant crocodile, bites the front end off a pirate boat, uh, including the mounted crossbow and its gunner, uh, then drags the entire boat and the rest of the crew far below the water. He then takes the ship and rams it into another boat, and it disintegrates in his mouth. I complained about our sails being made of gauze, but their boat was made of balsa wood, so I guess we're better off. He's like a 56 HP huge crocodile. (laughs) (laughs) So then he flips his tail and capsizes the second boat, which skitters across the top of the water upside down, leaving the crew thrashing in the water and desperately trying to escape this massive beast. Spoiler, they do not. Warden then sprouts his dragonfly wings and grabs Switch to carry her over to another boat, then turns into a giant snapping turtle, landing on the boat and sinking it while the paladin rides on the back of his shell. (laughs) The most dignified mount. (laughs) So at this point, most of the pirate vessels are sunk or barely manned at all, but one does sidle right up to the ship and two pirates board, meeting just an injured Lenore as opposition. She is still sprawled on the deck, but she does put an arrow through one of their eyes, although the other charges and slashes at her. Uh, In a panic, Warden and Switch (laughs) fly back to the boat, still sporting dragonfly wings. And the paladin leaps off and hacks apart the final pirate, and then runs over to the captain and forces his soul back into his body. Ah, revivify. Well, after feasting on the other pirates in the water, Bramble turns back into his humanoid form and is fished out of the water by the rest of the party. Is he sheepish about devouring all these people? Mm, meh. Mm. Well, he's polymorph, so does he know? What happens in polymorph stays in polymorph. You know, no one should tell him what he did. <laughs> so with the Siren pirates subdued, the sailors... The remaining sailors on the ship unfurl spare sails and continue the journey across Scion Sound to Flamekeep. The party does question the surviving pirates, though, and they share tales of woe, lost families, and a ruined homeland, because of course they are Siren, and the entire nation was destroyed just a few years ago on the Day of Mourning. So within a few hours, uh, two of the pirates begin coughing up blood, and the party realizes that they've been exposed to... (laughs) their plague-infested blood during the fight. Realizing that means that they'll both die, Switch offers them a choice. She only has one Revivify, and so she asks them to choose who she should use it on. They refuse. They, They both insist that the other one should live, so Switch just defaults to healing the first one to die, and the other pirates watch as one of their number passes away. The party does contemplate turning the rest of the pirates over to Thrain, but since the penalty for piracy in Thrain is death, they decide to just release them on unsettled coasts en route. You mean we marooned them? Eh, they weren't abandoned islands, they're just on the coast, and so they could make their they can make their way back and they'll be fine. Ishin, they'll be fine. We're the pirates now. <laughs> we marooned them. You didn't leave them with a gun with a single you didn't leave them with a wand with a single charge of firebolt (laughs) (laughs) and then several days later the lookout spots the distant spires of the cathedral of the silver flame off in the distance and the party nears flame keep 
and we'll find out what happens next, next week. But this week, we are talking about skipping ahead to the action. Uh, 20 minutes into our episode, we get to skipping ahead to the action. Are we doing it right? That's called vamping. Ah, okay, okay, cool. So, the opposite. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Skipping ahead of the action is, uh, fundamentally, it's a pacing technique, right? Uh, It's basically, once the players have decided on their course of action, you narrate them to the first dramatic moment of that course of action. So, whatever they choose, whatever point becomes the most interesting thing that they could be focused on is just the next thing that you narrate. So if players decide they're, you know, going to answer the call on the on the community uh the community board and go clear out the dungeon, like if you don't have anything exciting planned along the way, you don't bother with survival checks. You don't roll randomly to see if something happens. You just tell them they arrive <laughs> and skip to the part that's interesting. Like you might skip to the first room that's occupied at that point because like why are we wasting our time trying to open a door that isn't locked or checking for traps that don't exist? Let's just move into action. Yeah, like we just said, this is a common problem, I think, in D&D and other games that strive to be simulationist. Usually you are narrating a story um, and you're walking the players through it and you just decide where is the next location that you physically can actually go to let's find out what happens there and then we'll go to the next one and the next one and the next one and each time you enter a new place there is this expectation um, or this insistence by the game mechanics that something needs to happen here even if nothing needs to happen here even if it's an empty room so you end up just wasting all this time where people are making checks that can never have an interesting result because there's nothing to find so even a success is a failure in terms of the narration Right. And the it takes a long time often for people to realize that you can just skip all of that. Yeah. Ignore ignore all of that and and like not play that part of that game. I suspect that this comes from like the long tradition of exhaustive skill lists, mm-hmm. right? And I, I can think of like a Call of Cthulhu game where the players were moving from one place, you know, where they I I guess they had like been, you know, attacked by deep ones. Right. And then they were going to the university to investigate what had happened. The GM calls for a drive check. (laughs) What's the most interesting thing that could possibly happen in failure? Right. Like, is this story about three people who were attacked by deep ones and died in a car crash? (laughs) Or is this a story of three people who got attacked by deep ones and then tried to find out what that was and went insane in the process? (laughs) Right. Like, so whatever story you're trying to tell like go to the dramatic part for your story in that case i would say it's they arrive at the university they probably arrive at the library maybe they even arrive at the professor of occult studies right like they find him because that's obviously the logical place they would go you know if the only thing interesting that could happen next is they go to the school directory and look up the professor of occult studies well Forget it. They did it. I, you, you, like, wh- what does failure of that look like? Why bother? Right. Why make a rule for every single tome in the library that you're looking through? A success just means that you alight on the proper page in the proper book in the restricted section. Right. Exactly. Because, of course, you started in the restricted section, right? Why didn't you? I mean, that's 
uh, actually that's where I start naturally. I just go to the restricted <laughs> section and I'm like, anything interesting here? No. Okay. Well then I'll go look at, you know, the encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, you see, you're skipping straight ahead to the interesting part of the library. <laughs> I, I think this is easier in systems that presume a certain level of competence on the part of the players. A system that isn't trying to ask if a player can accomplish every single task that 130 skills might allow them to complete doesn't want to know whether or not you succeed on a simple drive check. It only wants to know if you can drive if you are being chased or you're chasing someone else. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want to know if you are able to read a card catalog to find out you know, where a particular book is, unless it's a cursed card catalog or or something right no it it takes a research check and puts you exactly where you need to be and as a person running a game in a system that doesn't presume competence you can just do that for the system you can do that for the game and say i'm just going to assume that these characters but also like my players know what they're doing and are not interested in the baseline minutiae of like finding out if they choke on their food at the dinner party that's not the interesting part of the story about the dinner party. If that is the interesting thing about the story of the dinner party, because like the system encourages zany pratfalls and like unexpected <laughs> tragic outcomes, uh, I'm thinking everyone is John. <laughs> like then fine, right? Like that is the interesting part. That's where you should go. Right. It's just you know again, it's always modulated by what is the purpose of your game and what is the purpose of your story and like what is really the like dramatic hook that you're playing with right i mean the choking is interesting because that is where i put the poison dr jones it's not a one-size-fits-all solution right the way that you implement it has to be a little bit different depending on again like what kind of story you're telling and and sort of what tools the system that you're playing offers you to help tell that story and that is sort of a nice uh, result of doing this and then having players recognize that you're doing this on a regular basis. Because if you do skip to something that seems banal, now you have a good level of metagaming where players are saying, wait, there's something here. We wouldn't be here if there wasn't something here. Right. So, you know, we talk about this, but like, how do you do it in a game? Well, I think, first of all, you need to prep for this, right? In that you need to prep with the assumption you will be skipping the boring stuff uh, ideally that means you don't bother planning anything in the interstitial state right or you plan to you know montage it or narrate it or you know ask them what happens on the way rather than um roll to find out what happens but uh I, I like to use the the principle from forge in the dark games which is you plan for obstacles you don't plan for solutions so you know, if any given, you know, mission or encounter in a Forge in the Dark game, like generally you want three or four obstacles, right? What are the three or four things that are going to attempt to uh, impede their progress? And then they will figure out how they overcome them. Um, you know, in a dungeon, that's three or four rooms, right? The dungeon might be 60 rooms deep, but there are three or four interesting rooms in that dungeon that you need to deal with. And so you, then you just skip to the next most important one. Yeah, if it does matter, then you should be asking how a player is solving a problem without giving an opportunity to then simply invite failure. So this means that you don't need to go through all the trouble of deciding 
there was a door here and here how's the door here's how the door is locked and here is the you know one sneaky way that players are able to figure out how to get through this door it's simply there's a door it is locked i will trust them to figure out a way to get through this door in fact maybe i don't even know the the one particular way to get through this door there are actually schrodinger's 80 ways to get through this door just give me something interesting but the, the flip side is like hey if you've got to get to that door because it's the door to the vault and you're robbing it and you know obviously this house is guarded but getting past the guards isn't that interesting for you uh, you don't want to spend any time on it. Cool. You're at the door. Uh, tell me how you got past the guards. Did you sneak past? Did you murder them? Did you give them a sleep spell or a sleeping potion? Did you, you know, drug them? Uh, did you pay them off? Like, I don't care what you did. Just tell me what it was. And now we'll go to this thing that we will figure out how you solve it. Right. Right. There will be consequences for any of the solutions that you came up with. Um, but perhaps those are just new and interesting obstacles. Right. Um, I, I, for me, it helps to think about this in maybe a, cin a cinematic perspective. You know, what are the scenes that are obviously going to show up if you're watching a film about breaking into this vault? You could keep or lose getting past the guards, right? Sometimes it's just one quick um, scene of like jumping over a, uh, a, like a low wall while a guard walks past and doesn't notice anything. Other times, you know, a different movie might have you sneaking up behind them and then, you know, snapping necks. Mm -hmm. But every single one of those movies is going to have the scene where they encounter the vault. That is obviously going to be one of the obstacles that, that you're placing. It's going to be one of the points that you jump to eventually. It might not be the first one, but, you know, depending on how long this arc is or how much time you want to take at the table, it might be where you go directly. You tailor this to your party by understanding, like, what are the skills that your that your players are invested in? If survival is important to them, or you have somebody who's invested in drive or ride, um, right? Like, make sure that you're offering obstacles that can be solved using those skills, right? Like, give them dramatic moments, you know? Uh, put a chase upon your, like, the last thing is your getaway, <laughs> right how do you get away uh you know are you going to be able to evade them with your driving will you have to fight whatever um you know like how are you overcoming the desert um like those are obstacles you need to figure that out and that's dramatic to determine what the outcome is like that's where you want to focus and a lot of times players vote with what they put on their sheet if you know that people have taken skills it means they want to use them and it's very important to realize that this this could just be a social situation, right? It You are not necessarily needing to put people in media res of a fight um, or a heist or something like that. It, it could be a lecture or uh, an audience or, or something like that. I mean, <laughs> how many people check for traps at the entrance to the tavern? <laughs> nobody has any problem skipping straight to the tavern keeper <laughs> well that's because they're all dumb <laughs> put your trap at the entrance yeah <laughs> did you say you're looking at the ceiling of the t of the tavern guess what cloaker cloaker <laughs> you trip over a claymore at the entrance of the swinging saloon doors <laughs> idiot so one other principle i think like how technique here is you need to narrate firmly right uh, the past has occurred. The narration is fact. The players only move forward. Um, you don't want to relitigate the past 
and you don't want to relitigate the plan um whatever it is like you're going uh unintended consequences or like difference of imagination it doesn't matter it's happened focus on how you get over the obstacle that's in front of you not you know sorting out the history that isn't important by definition because you narrated past it right it doesn't matter who said what okay or like who meant it or whose feelings got hurt all right we all just need to move on okay who punched who who killed whose character with a claymore in the tavern? <laughs> right. <laughs> Another way to think about this is to convert your dungeons. So if you think about the traditional dungeon crawl, you've got 60-odd rooms, and every single room has a number, sometimes a number and a letter next to it. Turn those into much bigger chunks, right? Uh, not every room is going to be interesting. Not every room needs to have a point where you pause in the narration, where you explain what's happening here, where players make a decision about what they're going to do. Um, it might be three or four times in that entire dungeon. And so the next thing you move on to, the um, amount of story taken up by just a few skill checks is 12 rooms. Yeah, you don't need to poke five feet at a time. <laughs> right like you start going five rooms at a time because those five rooms were boring and they were filled with random trash and a little bit of gold that you can just give them in another set of rewards right and people have been doing this for decades where you say all right i have a 10-foot pole i am very carefully tapping every single five-foot square to check for traps and look for loot okay but i'm doing that all the time constantly just let me know when something comes up i don't want to have to say it all the time and I'm saying, I don't even care how long the hallway is. <laughs> like, if there's a trap, well, let's roll for whether or not you, competent adventurers, spot the trap before it goes off. So this means that when you are running, or even when you are, you know, mapping, maybe, the traditional map is overly complicated. Mm -hmm. It's far more information than you actually need. Uh, what you really sort of need are, you know... Uh, a series of waypoints right really it's just we went left or right here um this way was fire uh this way was uh, gelatinous cubes um how far was it 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 unless we're getting into a chase scene it doesn't really matter and if we get into a chase scene then i'll ask just because you aren't mapping the whole dungeon you know grid by grid square by square doesn't mean you can't use a battle map for the room that contains the exciting encounter Right. It doesn't mean you can't use map and minis to, you know, introduce physical puzzles and things like that. Like you can do all of that stuff. You're just confining the focus of that to when it's dramatically relevant, when there's a question of success or failure rather than, you know, are you able to successfully walk down the hallway and check the four rooms on either side to confirm that they are empty. As someone who really enjoys battle maps, um, both like creating them and playing on that grid, it's so much easier to only have a map for set pieces where something is going to happen. Too often you end up making an entire map for, you know, oh, this haunted house or whatever. And like every single room and every single floor and every single set of stairs and secret passageway has a map, which also means I spent ink and time, you know, um, editing it to make sure it's the way that I want it to be and then printing it out and then bringing it and then taping it together and unrolling it. And like, I don't have time for that if we're not doing anything interesting or fun here. And I think this is maybe not how we started in our actual play, but definitely where we ended <laughs> in our actual play, right? Like 
that I think that was this principle in motion, especially on like the third level of the dungeon. Um, and, and actually, actually to a degree, even like the goblin side of the dungeon as well was just like, look, there's three interesting places in here. <laughs> like once you get through them, we're just going to move quickly between them because you don't really care what the shape of the map is. Right. To the right is, uh, turns out an empty room. I'm just going to give you that. All right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then once we got to the Grove level, I mean, part of that was just we didn't have time. But if you placed on the Citadel, there's hardly anything interesting on that entire floor. And it is the size of the previous floor. Let's talk a little bit about what some of the benefits of doing this are. Um, sort of the why you should consider this. Well, the first is that it speeds up play. Um, which means you can cram in more story, more lore, more actual rolling, more combat, whatever it is you find interesting into a single play session because you are focusing on the action, whether that action is combat itself, you know, in a round by round um, initiative order or, you know, exploration um, or social interaction. The back at camp scene, right? Is this like kind of brilliant innovation of like, there is a dramatic question that came out of our last mission and now we are skipping to the two two plus people who are involved in that question are now going to role play resolving that question right like do you trust each other what happened back there did i make the right call right like those questions are, are kind of the focus of the game right and so therefore like i don't care how you walked back from the mission back to camp. What I care about is when you got to camp, how did you feel and how did you interact with each other and how did you resolve the lingering doubt or joy or fear that came from the mission? Yeah, like perhaps a better way to phrase this is that you're skipping ahead to the drama. You're skipping ahead to the tension. Mm -hmm. Is is there necessarily quote unquote action happening? Well, two people sitting around a campfire talking about their feelings isn't a traditional uh, example of action but it is where the story is happening you're not getting bogged down in the minute minute details you're not pixel bitching through like you said right tapping every five in, every five foot square to make sure that there's you know nothing interesting that might happen uh and nothing valuable that might be missed um and you're not bothering to simulate the things that aren't necessarily to your point a dramatic question uh, if there's no drama to be found, we don't bother simulating it. I think we can all think of play sessions that we've been in, whether we were running the game or playing in the game, where we got caught up in the simulation aspect of the game and missed the story or missed an opportunity for more story. Whether, you know, you were a GM who was just a little unprepared and... And so you defaulted to sort of like walking characters through a realistic world in order to figure out what was happening next. Or you're a player who didn't really know where to go next. So you just started, sort of like started searching in ever widening circles. Neither of you needs to be beholden to that. Like on, on both sides of the screen, you can say, well, let's go do the interesting thing. I don't know right now what the interesting thing is. I do have a character and a sheet who is specifically designed to find interesting things because they don't have anything on their sheet that doesn't interact with things that aren't interesting. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, point is in that direction and let's skip all of this simulationism. 
Exactly. Unless, of course, let's just a caveat here. Let's, unless, of course, it is the simulationism, it is the minutia, it is this the the tiny little details that you find interesting and fun, right? If you're playing a survival game, then yeah, it's really important how many matches you have. So, mm-hmm. like, pay attention to that as long as that's interesting. Or like a hex crawl, right, where you don't necessarily know what's over the next ridge right you don't know what the next hex is going to hold it might be something boring uh but it might be something very interesting and you play to find out what's over that next hill um that's fine too but again then you're skipping to the next hex right and and you don't spend your time in the you know the four known safe hexes where you've already answered that question of what's there you go to the next question even in these situations like if you are in a hex crawl and let's say you go north and you don't find what you're looking for, and now you're going to go south. What do you usually do? You skip those intervening hexes. At least you don't describe those intervening hexes again. You skip to the other side, to the unexplored hex, right? right. <laughs> I mean, if you are yet again rolling through the explored hexes, might I suggest you don't do that? Yeah, I, well, you know, uh, this is the story of three people who walked north and then walked back to center <laughs> and then walked south and had three exciting events each way. <laughs> Um, I mentioned this earlier, but I think uh, skipping ahead to the action also helps minimize the opportunities to relitigate the plan. If your group is anything like ours, uh, you come, you spend a lot of time coming up with a plan. Uh, you run into the first thing that didn't go according to plan, and then you immediately grind to a halt to replan everything. <laughs> it's because everything must be extraordinarily optimized, and if we're not doing it the best way possible, why are we doing this at all? Exactly. So instead of letting that happen with some needless minutia that you didn't intend to be a, a derailing, you know, incident, you just skip to the thing that, you know, forget it. This is what the plan was in place for. Let's go find out if the plan works. And one nice thing about that is nobody really knows ahead of time if the plan is going to work. Even as a GM, you don't need to know if the plan is going to work. You don't need to know the solution to the problem, or at least every solution to the problem, which makes it perhaps in some ways counterintuitively, much easier to improvise. You only need to prep for what isn't going to be important to the narrative, not all of the random tangents that the dice or the players might lead you on, which of course means, you know, tightening those reins a little bit and making sure that people aren't finding opportunities to go completely off in a a random direction. You want want to make sure that uh, you are not uh, failing outward. Right. Does that make sense? That the, uh, a failure doesn't deviate people from the storyline. It still pushes you forward. You're still failing forward um, or succeeding forward either way. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, I think this is something that a lot of like newer GMs or, or I think maybe this is like almost <laughs> uh, symptomatic of like people like me who really started GMing in three point well, third edition, I guess, not 3.5. 3.0. Yeah, 3.0. Uh, is like, is that idea that like, there are reasons, to, like you have mechanics for basically every minute of the day if you want them. You should be using those mechanics to fully simulate the world like you would in, you know, a computer RPG, right? Um, where the world is fully reactive to what you do. Um, it turns out, that just produces a lot of like frustration in place and not a lot of movement. And so that's where you get GMs who are like, Oh, I got to have random encounters ready. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, I got to mm-hmm. know what to do if they do this. And it's like, well, couldn't you just not let them do that? And it's like, well, but then they then you're railroading them. And it's like, but if they choose to not do that, then why are you giving them the opportunity to do it? Like, they said they were going to the dungeon. Why, why are you getting caught up in, like, this forest? You know? Like, what, what are we doing here? Right. It's the Sunless Citadel, not the swamp by the side of the road yeah. where I got lost and my pony <laughs> died on the way to the sunset <laughs> right <laughs> I think I never got there <laughs> right <laughs> on the way I was told is the sunless citadel <laughs> this is going to make all of your lives easier anything that reduces the amount of prep that you need to do and the amount of like sweat and anxiety that you need to invest in whether a thing is going to go the way that it was planned to go yeah and it's also so good for managing time that's the other piece of this is like both managing your prep time but then also managing your session time so if you have like a con game or a stream you know where you have to fit like a a dramatic arc within a certain time period you absolutely need to keep things moving along the path of these dramatic questions to, to do that, like narrating them to those points is like the only, frankly, the only way, like if you don't do that, like I, I, I don't know how you make it out of the tavern in a con game (laughs) with six people who disagree on what door to leave through. You know, I just, I, I, I feel like you're just going to end up with a lot of tavern brawls. (laughs) All right. Do you hear that? Ishan? That's the sound of every door in this tavern getting kicked wide open. You know, brawls sometimes can tell you exactly where you need to go. On that note, now that everybody in the tavern is brawling, let's move on to the Character Creation Forge. And before we do that, talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord where you can meet Snark Knight and also ask us questions that might someday end up in our vamp. You should definitely do that. We need more vamp questions. (laughs) Here's the link in the show notes. All right, so this week in the Character Creation Forge, we're building the time skip. Shane, what the heck is that? Uh, That is what happens when you cram all the chronergy magic (laughs) into one character in order to best manipulate time. Wait, so this has nothing to do with double dutch? It has uh, no. Well, I mean, if if I could control time, I would probably use it to be better at double dutch. Uh, At least it's better than Hermione Granger, who used it to do more school. So I don't know. (laughs) All right, what's the build? The build is Chronergy Wizard 17, Echo Knight 3. Uh, both of these come from Explorer's Guide to Wildemount. Wildemount. All right. So with 17 levels of wizard, obviously, we're here for ninth level spells, including all the Dunamancy spells. Dunamancy? Dunamancy? Oh. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, Temporal Shunt is uh, one. Time Ravage is another one. That's your That would be your ninth level spell that uh, rapidly ages somebody like 60 years at a clip. Uh, at level two, you'll get Chronal Shift, uh, which as a reaction allows you to force a reroll twice per long rest. Uh, you will also get Temporal Awareness, which gives your intelligence modifier to initiative. At level six, you get momentary stasis as an action. You can force a constitution saving throw versus incapacitation uh, intelligence modifier times per long rest i like this one you're just stuck in time (laughs) i've stopped time 
and incapacitated is a, a great status effect. Uh, you'll also, at level 10, get Arcane Abeyance, which allows you to freeze spells in time uh, for others to cast them. It's basically making scrolls, but, uh, you know, it, it's still, it, you know, timey-wiminess. Like, oh, this spell is ready. It, it's just not... I mean, that's exactly how I would describe describing scrolls with this character, right? Right. I have frozen this in time using the medium of ink. Unlike scrolls, you don't actually have to be able to cast the spell in order to activate it, so <laughs> slight difference. If you look closely, you can see the way that this piece of paper looked hundreds of years ago. <laughs> uh, and then at level 14, the ability that we're really here for is Convergent Future, which allows you to gain a level of exhaustion that can only be reduced through long rest, uh, to choose whether a roll succeeds by one or fails by one. So you can just decide when things happen or don't. Because you just waited for the right time. I've just peered into all futures and selected the one that was most favorable to me. Or at least favorable to you. I mean, you know, same difference to me. Right. We are also taking a bit of Echo Knight. We get a fighting style, second wind, action surge, the fighter goodies. Uh, and then as a bonus action, you'll be able to manifest your echo. This lets you put your echo in another square. You can teleport between them. takes 15 feet of movement. Uh, you can make reactions from your echo square. It just kind of gives you that sort of like timey-wimey nonsense of like, I'm here, but I'm not there. And like I like flashed back and forth real quickly. And it just felt really like thematic, you know, because like that's one thing about like we aren't skipping through time. We're controlling time. Well, now you can kind of skip because one second you're here and in the same second you're there. Which one is really you? Would you put the three levels of Echo Knight at the end or would you insert them somewhere in the wizard levels? Uh, honestly, I would probably put them at the end. I feel like manifesting your Echo is kind of a cool capstone um, and you've already got all your power at that point. So, you know, it, and there's frankly not a ton of synergy between these with the uh, with fighter, you know? <laughs> I would take it a little earlier only so that I could action surge double spell. Okay, I lied. There's a little bit of synergy between <laughs> <laughs> So Shane, who is your time skip? My time skip is a researcher who uh, was, you know, studying the arcane, trying to find new ways of using magic, and accidentally got themselves unmoored from time, uh, and is now, uh, through sheer force of willpower and arcane manipulation, trying to keep themselves anchored in this reality uh rather than casting spells in order to um you know positively manipulate things um my time skip is constantly trying to not let these spells happen to them <laughs> uh and only occasionally lets the rain slip in order to get a little bit of an advantage nice i think there are a lot of opportunities with this character for just weird nonsense uh it didn't explain how you sleep so you've got to be an elf <laughs> what happens when you're incapacitated or knocked out <laughs> what happens when you leave this plane there's all types of questions to ask and it's all magic timey-wimey nonsense Ishan, who is your time skip i mean like i said double dutch you know um my time skip is living mm, backwards through time i suppose um or at least they describe it as, as backwards. It is, it is essentially, no, I think maybe she would describe it as living perpendicularly uh, in that uh, causality doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense to her. Um, 
you know, just because something happened before, does that mean that the effect must necessarily come after it? Why can't the effect occur before? Because why does time only move in one direction here? This doesn't really make any sense. I'm just trying to make sense of a weird world where we're all on this raft moving through a, a stream going in one direction and you could never paddle backwards to where you were. And if you drop something, it's gone forever. And like, who, who can live like that? I, I love that this character concept, rather than having to make up nonsense technobabble, you get to make up nonsense chronobabble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I learned to cast time stop just so I could have a break. I wanted to get exactly. <laughs> What do you do with your extra action? Sleep. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I guess uh, that is a good spell to cast. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, no, no. Nap time, nap time. All right, uh, before we wrap up, let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And, of course, we have a five-star iTunes review. Uh, leaving us an iTunes review is the best way to help other people find the show. It is completely free, and it absolutely works. So this is Simply the Best by C.R. Main? Mine? Hmm. A long-running podcast with lots of great material and just enough New York sarcasm to make me feel at home. Love you guys. Hey, are we long-running? Does this qualify? Six years? Uh, yeah, I think the average podcast is like six episodes. So. Uh, mm, okay. That, wow, we're ancient. Mm, I know. We're unmoored in time. <laughs> <laughs> we're living perpendicularly. Uh, what do we have planned for next week's episode so we're actually talking about using orcs and in the character creation forge we're building the all-nighter well that's it for episode 285 of total party thrill i hope we lived up to our name but either way i'm shane and i'm ishan thanks for listening